welcome to the Market Texture Podcast. We have a very special extra bonus episode today. Uh, so as many of you know, I started my career at DoubleClick and later at Google, and I've spoken a bunch about that time publicly, but a lot of my friends and colleagues from that time haven't. And it's mostly because they were smart enough to stay at Google, uh, and they had very productive jobs changing the advertising ecosystem while working there. Well, through a series of changes in people's lives, uh, for the first time ever, a bunch of my colleagues are no longer work there and are happy to share some of their experiences from the DoubleClick days publicly. Um, so I have an amazing group of people who are personal friends of mine, as well as uh, incredibly experienced ad tech professionals. And so I'm going to introduce them and ask them to, as an icebreaker, just list every DoubleClick or Google product they at one time product managed. Just a quick list. I'll go first to just give an example. So my list is um, DoubleClick Rich Media, Dart Studio, DoubleClick Video, DoubleClick Mobile, DFA, Media Advisor Site uh, Directory, uh, or whatever it's called, Google Ad Manager, and a couple of others. I I'm kind of losing track. Why don't I, in order of seniority, let's start with my, our first guest, Brad Bender. So, Brad, thanks for being here. <laughs> thanks so much, Ari. This is a really tough question, Ari. <laughs> <laughs> you, how, many years, how many years were you in DoubleClick and Google combined? 20? 25 years. Oh, my in. God. Yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've owned a lot of products uh, over my tenure. <laughs> I'm going to forget some. But yeah, back back in the day, I guess uh, a boomerang, uh, Dart Adapt, you know, later on, uh, you know, DFA, DFP, what became, you know, kind of DRX, DV360, measurement and, uh, you know, analytic solutions, privacy and user trust solutions. Uh, I think at one point in time, I pretty much owned every double click. Wow. Solution. I don't know, even know what DRX is. What's DRX? <laughs> I'll let Jonathan answer that. Okay. Next in our list of amazing uh, guests, esteemed guests, uh, who many of you probably know, Jonathan Bellick. Uh, so, Jonathan, you want to give us the uh, the list of products? Yeah, sure. I uh, I was the relatively new kid on the block because I only joined DoubleClick in 2004. And I worked on Boomerang, uh, some custom systems we did for eBay and AOL that we never sold otherwise. Double click for publishers, double click sales manager, Dart Enterprise, and the double click ad exchange. All right. And last but not least, uh, Jason Bigler. Jason, give us your list. Well, let's see. I mean, it was mostly during that era MediaVisor, DFA, Site Directory, a one off thing that we built called Perseus. Um, and of course, I think it spanned every other product um, post acquisition. All right. So basically, between the four of us, we've managed virtually every product in the double click suite. So the reason I brought us all together, uh, besides the fact that it would it'd be fun, um, was because I feel as though there have been a bunch of sort of oral histories of DoubleClick, um, and they always sort of go like this. DoubleClick was a high-flying company in the 90s, founded by Kevin and Kevin. Uh, they made tons of money, went public, it was crazy, and then it got acquired by Google by three, for $3.1 billion. Um, and I think for those of us who work there, that, that's sort of skipping the messy middle. Um, in the 2000s, DoubleClick, the mid-2000s, before the acquisition, DoubleClick was kind of a mess. 
Yes, uh, it went through a lot of changes, and it was um, it was an interesting story. And I don't think a lot of people have talked about it. Maybe we we'll start with you, Brad, since you were here, kind of before and after. How much of a mess was DoubleClick in the early two thousands? <laughs> that's a that's a great great setup. Uh, it was right. so bad he left the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that yeah, I mean that that's the interesting part. I mean, I think. Um, you know, uh, you you guys all know. You know, so I started DoubleClick in '97. Um, so I was there for like the early, you know, rise. But then I actually took a role in Europe for a few years. I was in Europe from 2001 to 2004. Um, so you know, when I when I kind of left, it was the beginning of that tech bubble popping. I think, which is probably what caused a lot of what, what you're talking about, Ari. I came back in 2004. I, I'm pretty sure, you know, either Jonathan or, or, or Jason uh, were like, hey, oh, you must be new here. <laughs> uh, I was like, no, no, uh, just come back from Europe. Uh, been around a little while, but, you know, it is, and it was great. It was a great era, even though it was a bit messy, like you're saying. The culture definitely shifted, right? I think the company had expanded beyond kind of its core tech roots, you know, which is the genesis of it, which was, you know, kind of the buy side and the sell side platform and the network and, you know, got into a lot of other businesses, right? There was the B2B catalog business, there's the marketing automation business, you know, so it was a bit of like kind of a sprawling set of things. There was a lot of shifting going on, right, um, that we can get into. You know, I came back and I remember I was talking to my mentor at the time saying, wow, I won't be surprised if something pretty big changes soon. And that was in 2004. And, you know, the next thing I, I think we heard was, you know, Hellman and Freeman, you know, and JMI were coming in to acquire the business in 2005. Well, I appreciate you referring to me as your mentor. That really means a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I heard uh, David Rosenblatt, who was the CEO during uh, this period when it was taken private by Hellman and Freeman, um, he, he once said that. 80% of DoubleClick's customers went out of business in the dot-com bubble. That must have been pretty brutal. Yeah, I mean, from where I sat, it certainly was. I mean, there was there was a period of retrenchment in there, which I think may, may have predated all of you. And it, pretty much in 2001, there was a series of, you know, starting a series of layoffs. And, uh, you know, they, you know, every time I think uh, management thought that, they were done with the cuts. They they weren't. So the the company went through a series of cuts, like getting down to the bones. Some really exceptional people uh, were let go during that period, and I think it was a reflection of what was going on uh, with the dot com bust. And actually, I think it's also in part why DoubleClick kind of went into some of these other businesses just to kind of insulate itself from what was going on with, you know, kind of the dot-com businesses. Um, some of these other businesses were a bit more stable, relatively. But then it it made it such that the company was no longer as focused right. on, on the digital advertising use case. Yeah, they, they, had, they had a leadership position in the digital advertising space, uh, which suddenly disappeared. Uh, and they invested in a lot of interesting other software products, including a pretty big investment in mail, uh, email marketing, um, which they had later sold off. 
Um, so Jonathan, you and I joined right around the same time in 2004, I think. And you were sort of like the shortstop, right, among the DoubleClick product <laughs> managers. You were given a lot of sort of interesting, weird little projects. Can you tell us a little bit how that felt, like what uh, what you were working on uh, before you started working on the, the big Kahuna DFP? Yeah, so it was precarious because I came out of business school in 2004 and there was very little technology to do in New York City if you didn't want to go into like a bank or something. I had interned at IBM for a summer and that was not for me. And I was just glad to have a job. And I was sort of floating around doing some retargeting stuff. And then I mentioned these like custom projects for eBay and AOL. And I never quite knew if I was going to have a job in the long run. I think I was supposed to report to Brad for a hot second, and we weren't quite sure what that was going to mean either. And it was weird as a company where I think they had lost faith in digital ads in a really deep and profound way. Like all of the, all of the marketing was about the marketing technology stack and for me showing up and actually being interested in publishers, I think they were like, oh, yeah, I guess we still have a platform business working on publishers. It's maybe a cash cow. Yeah, that's hysterical. So uh, nowadays, uh, DFP, which is now called GAM, but you're not allowed to call it GAM. You have to call it Google Ad Manager, um, is the is the 800-pound gorilla. But at the time, uh, when especially when you took it over, DFP was really showing its age. It was not an unstoppable force by any uh, stretch of the imagination. You had to use Internet Explorer to access it, um, <laughs> among other problems. Uh, want to take us a little bit through those years when... Um, you and the team kind of uh, got DFP into better shape through some, you know, by signing AOL, by investing in the product, uh, by doing acquisitions? Yeah. So if the funny thing is DFP was still the biggest product of its kind in the market, but it had been shrinking. It was losing ground. There were hungry competitors with better products or at least they said they had better products in the U.S. and in Europe making inroads. And I would say I would sum up the attitude of the customer base. I made my first business trip to San Francisco to meet with some parenting site affiliated with some big CBG company. And I go into their offices. The guy literally puts his feet on the desk in front of me and says, DoubleClick has lied to me and let me down so many times. I don't know why I should believe a single thing you have to say for me to me today. And I had this moment of being like, I could go get a burrito. I don't have to do this. Um, <laughs> you got the burrito anyway, didn't you? <laughs> no, of course. But later, after I turned his attitude around. Um but I think what it was, was it was just starting to listen again. There had been so much good work in those early days. A lot of people were rooting for us to just stop sucking so bad. There's a, another story, but we'll move on from that. So what it was, was just working our asses off, trying to listen to customers and trying to actually build something that would help them get their jobs done. That we moved all the, all the positioning and marketing around, like, help you save time when trafficking, deliver your ads worry-free, just showing them that DoubleClick cared as a company went a long way. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you had a huge amount to do with that. Jason, speaking of uh, stories about sucking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, architecture listeners. This is just a bunch of my friends hanging out. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, you were there a little bit longer uh, than Jonathan and I, and you ran the buy side, so DFA and the related products. Um, and it was a really interesting time, I think, because the, your customers, the agencies, really wanted to have a bigger impact. Um, and they were having a hard time because um, ex exchange buying and programmatic buying didn't exist yet. Um, so they were just sort of scrambling for ways to buy and transact media smarter. You want to comment on that about how, how that played out? I mean, I was I was reminiscing as you guys were going through that. I joined in 02. So I think DoubleClick still had its network business. It sold it to L90, which later became, what was that, Max Worldwide? Is that, what, is that who it was? Yeah, I think so. And, and the That's buy right. side was just a, a sort of walking into it, right? We had MediaVisor, which was a disjointed product that was uh, it was effectively acquired. Uh, DFA was derivative of DFP, right? So they just renamed the taxonomy into agency-friendly term. We ended up focusing quite a bit on the intersection of those two products, to which an outsider would say, like, well, why aren't these just one product? And uh, I guess legend would have it they attempted to do that before they acquired MediaVisor. But I think the thing that really changed the dimension was asking the question for an agency that ultimately needs to deliver value to its clients was how can this software deliver value and insights to agencies, which can be transacted into, into customer insights. Uh, so reporting became a huge focus of our turnaround in that area. Um, it helped to have like a really aggressive a competitor in, uh, in Atlas, Atlas DMT. You really kept us, kept us honest. They were in a share winning position. But when we really pivoted, this kind of plays into what Jonathan was saying. We pivoted to reporting and we were laser focused on that particular element of it. We began to really change the narrative of that value creation dynamic of how agencies can drive insights, which translates into value for their customers. And it, it, the reason I think DFA and DFP ultimately were two different products was so that you could charge people twice, right? That was a joke. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I'll add my little story here. Um, so I was brought on in 2004 to fix the double-click rich media business, which at the time was under the brand name Dart Motif. Um, for those of you who use Dart Motif, I probably gave you PTSD from saying that. Double-click was under attack from a lot of really smart competitors like Point Roll and iBlaster and other folks like that who are doing rich media products. And video was just starting. And double-click was really far behind and had announced a product called Dart Motif, which was effectively non-usable um, and was not working. And uh, through great work on the engineering side, as well as acquisition, we were able to turn it into kind of a winner. Um, so I guess let, let's now move towards the, the first acquisition. So this is also, also something that's often papered over, which is that DoubleClick was a public company, a pretty high-flying one. And then in I, I'm round numbers, let's call it 2005, uh, they announced they were going to look at strategic acquisition, uh, strategic options, excuse me. And then they were acquired by private equity firm Hellman and Friedman, and David Rosenblatt was made the CEO. And I think all of us, uh, speaking for everyone, are pretty fond of Mr. Rosenblatt. He did a great job. So what did it feel like when 
when uh, when there was sort of a new regime under David uh, and under new owners. Um, maybe I'll give it Brad. You could start, and anyone else wants to chime in? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it was Hellman and Freeman and JMI coming in, you know, it, the interesting part of the history here, too, I think we all know, is a number of strategics looked at the company at that time as well, right? You know, and again, this is a little bit hearsay, but I think Google did, um, Microsoft, Yahoo, possibly looking at that point, too. Hellman and Freeman and JMI, I think, really saw kind of the, the diamond in the rough here. They put a lot of faith also in kind of uh, Rosenblatt and the leadership team uh, to do the turnaround. And so I think a big part of what changed was the refocusing of the business, right? We, you know, I talked earlier about some of these expansions, you know, um, the B2B catalog, uh, you know, the Abacus business that was sold, the marketing automation business was sold. You know, we got out of, um, you know, most of the other things except for this core kind of tech platform, you know, the double click for um, buyers and sellers platforms. And um, things like Motif, things like Dart Adapt, which were kind of some of the cutting edge uh, areas we were in investing in. And really, you know, you guys remember, you know, there, there was that term, it was like, move fast, right? So we, we really went from, I think, not being as focused to really being very focused on roadmap delivery, speed of execution, listening to customers, uh, and turning around changes quickly. So there's a lot of renewed kind of focus and energy and I just say personally, you know, some of my favorite time at the, at the company um, was just that pure focused area. I mean, I think we were all working round the clock, you know, it's kind of almost like burnout pace of work, but I think we were just all supercharged um, and energized, you know, Rosenblatt and, and the team had a lot to do with that. It's funny you say fast, Brad. Do you remember the FAST acronym that Rosenblatt rolled out? Yeah, I don't remember what it stood for. <laughs> no, I, I remember it. It was focus, accountability, simplicity, transparency. There you go. All right, there you go. Um, so oh, during this time, um, there's an unsung hero here. There's the, the most important person in media you've never heard of, um, which is a, a gentleman, a consultant by the name of Dwight reporter who um, was an outside consultant, and you would think that would be kind of a not the highest leveraged position, um, but he was absolutely critical to the turnaround at DoubleClick. Um, does anyone, maybe maybe Jason or, or Jonathan, you want to talk about the impact that Dwight had on the business? Oh, oh God. Um, yeah, but like beyond that, Yoda. because he didn't just hide on a swamp planet and lie to people about who their sister was. Um, but uh, sorry, deep cut. I'm a big nerd. Um, so Dwight is a first of all, not just was is he's still out there, and all of you probably can't afford him because he's that good. He started as a pricing consultant and helped the company really sort of fix its pricing to actually respond to the market and taught us all a ton about how to do pricing and not just price what you hope people will pay, but understand what they will. And then got involved in a really rigorous strategic planning process that we did every year. And he helped structure it. He helped facilitate it. He would take product managers and other leaders aside and help coach them on what to do. And he had this kind of amazing ability to both be really encouraging and call out total bullshit when it needs to be called out. I mean, he made everybody in the room smarter every time he showed up. 
David Rosenblatt once said that even though he was just pricing, pricing was like pulling a hair from your head and you would get all the DNA because it, everything is pricing. You know, you could price more if your product's better, you price less if uh, it's very competitive, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, pricing turned out to be the most important thing for us to analyze in a competitive SaaS market. All right, Jason? No, I was just going to say, like, the other thing Dwight did was he put product management at the centerpiece of the strategy, right? Like he was, he was acutely responsible for giving us the agency to drive our respective product areas. And that was all the way down from, from David, right through Neil, et cetera. I think you could all agree. Like we all kind of felt that empowerment to make really good decisions, obviously with a cross-functional group of people, but like we felt that empowerment. Yeah, and that was a bit of a change. I think the first wave of DoubleClick was a very sales-driven company. Although, Brad, do you, do you agree with that characterization, or am I? Yeah, no, I think that I think that is right. Um, and you got to remember the the initial wave. It was it was more on the media side, right? It was really the network uh, that was the first business, and so that was very much a sales-oriented uh, kind of uh, media sale, if you will. And a lot of the initial kind of leadership came from media. Even though like kind of the DFP was underpinning it, you know, that shift into more of the tech sale. And of course, you know, once we exited um, having the network, you know, it, it really kind of completed that pivot um, such that we were then a tech company. And at a tech company, I think having, you know, product and engineering uh, be the center is, is the right call. Yeah, I want to repeat that for all the kids listening at home. One of the keys to DoubleClick's $3.1 billion exit was empowering product management. Okay, we have a takeaway. Um, so uh, one, one story I think is interesting. Uh, we talk about pricing and about moving fast. Well, I, I remember specifically that we were doing one of these sessions where every product manager in the company came up and, and talked about their pricing issues using Dwight's methodologies. And one one person, I can't remember who it was, it wasn't one of any of us, had just a really bad story. It was just like really bad. Like our product's not nearly as good and we charge more or something along those lines. And Rosenblatt literally in the meeting said, okay, we're shutting this product down. <laughs> I thought, like that was that's moving fast. Like that's uh that's how you move fast. That's a wartime CEO. Do, do we want to talk about the AOL deal? Um, because basically in a SaaS company, often you think about the whales, how do you get the big clients? And during this time, DoubleClick signed AOL as a DFP customer. And to give a sense of the size of that, uh, well, maybe Jonathan, you could give a sense of the size. It was like half the business. I don't know. It was bigger by far the biggest client. It, it was actually not the biggest client, and it drove them crazy. Um, that they it was but Who it, was the biggest client? <laughs> eBay. Oh, okay. eBay used DFP and DFA together in this kind of hideous Frankenstein to run all of their on-site offer management. So if you ever bought a Furby or an iPod on eBay in the mid-2000s, it was actually a double-click product under the hood. In terms of the AOL deal, a lot of people worked hard on it. I want to make sure I give appropriate shout outs to Scott Spencer and Kurt Sporer from those days who flew the AOL shuttle up and down from Dulles like weekly for six months to convince AOL to move their entire ad serving system over. They really closed and won that deal on the product side. And it was a huge vote of confidence in the market because at that time, 
AOL was one of the 800-pound gorillas of display advertising. Google didn't have a product in the market yet, and um, so it was a huge vote that you could actually run something industrial scale on DoubleClick. Yeah, let's shout out to Michael Rubenstein, um, who yeah, strategic yeah. accounts and closed the deal. Um, and also Scott Spencer, who's not with us on this podcast. We could have had him. He's kind of like the Liam Neeson of ad tech. You know, he has a special set of skills. And uh, <laughs> you want to be very careful around him. <laughs> hey, Scott, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> so, Jonathan, is it true that when you we built a new product for uh, AOL, that it was so slow that the traffickers needed to buy extra laptops so that they can uh, hit refresh on one and then do their work on the other? Um, yeah, for all um, <laughs> former customers of DoubleClick Sales Manager, I'm really sorry. We tried. How big was that browser cache? Um, I don't know. I think we're still counting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't all, it wasn't all roses, I guess. So we're talking earlier about strategic planning. Uh, one, one thing I remember, um, and this is very germane because we're kind of, as we go through the timeline, we're starting to approach programmatic revolution um, because everything we've been talking about was pre-programmatic. Programmatic didn't exist. Um, and what was interesting was we did our annual strategic planning one year. Uh, I want to call it 2006. And it was very buttoned up and we had a really good plan. And then almost like a month later, um, Yahoo invested quite a bit of money in Right Media um, when it was still a separate company. And it was a bit of an oh shit moment for us, um, that we didn't have much going on in that world. And so uh, we assembled sort of a group. Scott was leading it, I think. Um, does anyone want to talk about like that? I think it was called Project Wolf. Am I misremembering? Yeah, yeah, you know, so I, I was gonna, I was gonna weigh in a little bit, um, even on like eBay, uh, because um, eBay's got a really interesting part of this history too that I just want to call out, which is, um, you know, and Jonathan, you had mentioned you own Boomerang for a while, I own Boomerang for a while, and the main reason we kept Boomerang around was because of eBay. Um, it was one of those products where, like, if if you just kind of looked at it, you'd say, well, it's really not getting used by many customers at all. But if you think about, you know, Boomerang, which in effect became remarketing, I mean, it's like the, the genesis of programmatic buying uh, was all there. And it was kind of, you know, they were, they were the ones keeping that small flame alive. And then I think we needed to kind of get into a, a bit of a war room to think about, like, what are we going to, what are we going to do, you know, kind of to shift the game based on, you know, what was going on um, in, in the market. Right. Boomerang was sort of like the rotary phone of, of programmatic, uh, where basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically a, a DFA customer would collect a bunch of cookies and then create a list and then they'd call their account rep and their account rep would like manually move that list to a DFP customer. And because DFA and DFP shared the same double click cookie, you could retarget. Is yeah. That well, and well, yeah. And the issue, the issue with Boomerang was it could be used to like segment your buy. But it, it couldn't take over the entire buy. That that's the big shift, right? So like you would still have to buy a thousand, let's say, impressions off off of the homepage. Um, you'd have a, an agreed CPM on that. But then in the back end, you can kind of look up your boomerang list to see, oh, which creative should we give you? Should we give you the creative that is the re remarketing creative, or should we give you just kind of a more generic creative? And there were some like innovative ways um, that started to flow where, 
you know, you would, you, you know, the publisher would agree maybe to run a house ad instead for the other impressions that didn't match your list. But it really was kind of clunky. I, I think the, the, the main insight that came out, and I, I was part of these strategic discussions, was this notion of having an ad exchange, right, where you could layer kind of buying cookie lists on top. You could really get into this, you know, kind of uh, payment per, you know, cookie almost uh, idea where you could start to raise your bids, you know, quite high and only buy, you know, kind of the, the user, you know, lists you wanted. And so that, that was a huge revolution. And that was really that type of thinking was, you know, foundational for right media as well. And so that was that was the big shift. There was also there were a lot of early signs on the publisher side. I remember talking, God help me, to Friendster back when Friendster was a thing. <laughs> the ad ops manager had this discussion about they worked with like seven or eight ad networks, and every week somebody would have to spend two days pulling all these reports and analyzing what targeting led to the best revenue on that given week, and should they adjust any of their line items and trafficking. And it was this enormous pain in the butt, but they were making money off of it. And that was the kind of the other side of the genius of the team that put AdX together and why I think programmatic took off is every publisher was always going to have a huge amount of what was at that time called remnant inventory that they couldn't unload. There was no like TJ Maxx of the internet. Yeah, I, I think it, during those really early days, we were largely thinking of this from the lens of publishers optimizing remnant. Um, how do I how do I shift my waterfall? How do I move things around? But the biggest impact of programmatic happened to the buy side. Um, it was the empowerment that went to the buy side. Jason, did you uh, do you recall like talking to people like the Viviki team, etc., about in these early days of programmatic or or even the um, Pegasus? Uh, situation? Perseus. Perseus, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, Perseus was kind of a prelude to this because what the use case that um, the General Motors wanted solved was they acquire a bunch of inventory up front, kind of like an ad network does, and they want to come up with the best way to optimize uh, a set of interactions with customers across all that inventory. In addition to other use cases, like just being able to do dynamic budgetary shifts between products and brands and such, it was effectively just a UI that sat on top of uh, a two-layer DFA network. But like fundamentally, that's what they wanted to do, right? They were trying to figure out, one, how can I acquire more upfront and get efficiencies of acquisition just from the publishers in doing so, but then to also create as much liquidity across that pool of inventory as they possibly can with the dynamic allocation that we built into it. That was like the canary in the coal mine for us thinking about the buy side as a network play. And the buy side as a network play is really what transpired in programmatic. Yeah, exactly. You and I used to talk about this a lot. We used to say, what if Boomerang worked across publishers automatically? We were, we were so, I mean, I think I was pretty naive. I didn't really get it um, at that time. Um, and other people um, outside of DoubleClick really did a lot of the innovation that uh, that ended up washing ashore with us. Yeah. And, um, and actually, Ari, on that, I mean, I remember because I, you know, I was responsible for one of these kind of cutting edge areas, optimization at the company. And um, 
I remember coming to strategic planning and talking about exactly, you know, this dynamic, but it was, it was very new, I think, to most everyone inside DoubleClick. Um, but it's pretty clear once you started to think about like data optimization, like this could be pretty huge. One other thing I just wanted to mention, actually, because it was so, it's so interesting to hear all of you talking, because I think it was kind of coming from a different, a few different fronts that this could be pretty big. So you had mentioned a code name before, you know, which was Wolf. So just short piece of trivia, which I think is fun. So Wolf was um, the code name because it was the reverse of flow. So the whole idea was about flow. And basically, Project Wolf was like the code name uh, that we used internally that later became the ad exchange, where, of course, all this flow could happen. So that's the history of that one. Yeah, thanks. There are a lot of good code names back in the day. Um, so we're, we're not going to talk about our time at Google because um, several of us uh, worked there recently. Um, but let's talk about the acquisition process. Um, so in 2007, I guess, um, there was this feeding frenzy where um, within the course of one month, 24-7 was bought by WPP, Right Media was bought by Yahoo, DoubleClick was bought by Google, and... Aquaniv was bought by Microsoft for $6.1 billion, which was uh, one of the worst acquisitions in history. But <laughs> yeah, let's all have a good laugh about that. Probably wasn't a bad acquisition if you worked at Aquaniv. <laughs> it was a very good acquisition if you worked at Aquaniv. Um, so uh, I guess um, I, I remember one meeting where we all, it was starting to get in the press that DoubleClick might be in play. And there was this meeting where um, it was us plus Scott plus, uh, we haven't mentioned our boss. So we all worked at the time for Neil Mohan, who is now the CEO of YouTube. So congratulations. Hello to be his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and uh, and David Rosenblatt said to us, uh, "Well, where there's smoke, there's fire, and we have a bunch of bidders on the company, um, and we're in the middle of a process." And that was the first any of us had really heard of it. Um, what, what was what was the reaction? Uh, anyone want to take that one? Yeah, it was the payoff for all of that incredibly hard work. Yeah, I mean, I think we had all we had all gone into that second, like post Helmut and Friedman. Private equity, right? Complete like optimization and refocus of the company to some outcome, right? And so we saw the outcome, right? Where there's smoke, there's fire as being like really tangible. I, like I, we were all super excited for whatever was going to happen, but, but more, I think, because we were all going to learn something from it too. I don't think any of us had been through something of, uh, of that magnitude before. So it was a learning experience. Um, Everything from just the mechanics of what we had to go through in diligence to, you know, the cultural uh, intersection points with the deal team, ultimately, which we could spend a whole segment on that, probably. The breeze? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought, we were gonna, I thought we were going to talk about, uh, I thought we were going to talk about Shelter Island or wherever we went. On, uh... we, did, we did bowl for the platform and, and we won. Right. <laughs> okay. Too many inside jokes. Um, so, <laughs> so it was a spectacular outcome in that, uh, especially for the investors. So Hel Helman and Freeman uh, and JMI bought the company for, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, something like seven hundred million dollars, of which four hundred was debt. So they put three hundred of their own money in, um, and then they sold it for three point one billion, so ten x return in about eighteen months. 
Um, that, that goes, uh, I once made the joke, which I think is accurate, which is it was such a good deal that they named a conference room after us. Uh, so uh, go to the Hellman Freeman headquarters, check out the double click conference room. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> Um, so, um, I think, um, one of the things that was obvious was that we're going to have some cultural differences with our new owner. Um, but it was great that they brought in the free snacks. Um, there was, um, <laughs> do you remember like during, so there was about a year of regulatory review, um, which we could probably make jokes about that, but it would be inappropriate at this time. Uh, there was about a year of regulatory review, uh, and the, we weren't allowed to talk to our future Google colleagues, but they did bring free snacks into our office by, by the truckload a couple of times. The, uh, and I think we were allowed to have lunch in the cafeteria once. Could someone, does anyone remember that? Time? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was multiple things. So Google had moved into the same building, the big Port Authority building, long before any of this smoke and fire stuff. So we're all kind of vaguely intimidated slash jealous because we would walk past their free cafeteria on the way to go down to Chelsea Market to pay for our food. And they started clearing the Googlers out to let the DoubleClick people eat there like once every few weeks. And it was back when the Google cafeterias were just legendary. We're talking like, you know, like lamb chops and stuff. It was insane. And people would get like three plates. It was impossible. And then at some point in this, they started bringing racks of snacks from the the Google micro kitchens up to the double click office. And the first time they did it, People descended on it like they were trying to get a helicopter out of a country that was collapsing. <laughs> like, when it was gone, I'm surprised nobody knocked it over to see if there were more snacks inside of it. It was chaos. And it was really exciting. It was like, holy crap, like, this is, I guess, what successful companies do, too. I don't know. The snacks were very good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. and I think it's fair to say that Google cafeterias, have, they haven't gone downhill, but they've become a little more modest over, over the past 15 years. Yeah. Uh, you guys probably can't comment on that, but I will comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's wrap this up. Um, so let's, let's go around the horn. Um, just the funniest or best memory of, of this time at, at DoubleClick. I'll give you a second to think. I'll, I'll just give my, my quick funny uh, origin story, which is, um, you know, I had interviewed uh, to be the product manager for Dart Motif, did a full day of interviews. Like they just, they just really needed, it was pretty desperate. Um, and the only thing I'd read in the press about Motif was that it was expected to do $20 million in revenue that year as a public company. Kevin, uh, Kevin Ryan had said that. And then when I started, first of all, they wanted me to start the next day, which may was a red flag. Uh, and then when I did start, um, I asked, well, how are we doing on that 10 million or $20 million in revenue? Because it was July, so halfway through the year, and it had booked $75,000 in revenue. And the one customer that had paid $75,000 was very unhappy. Um, so that was my introduction to DoubleClick. It was a little bit of jumping into the fire. Bigler? <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of like, I'm GPFing on all of the candidates of, of fun stories. There, there's so many. I suppose, I, I mean, because he's, he's part of the podcast here, there were numerous occasions where when Bellick and I would be like full tilt, like <laughs> I would end up riding his shoulders at some PM offsite at some place. <laughs> I think it happened in Puerto Rico. It happened in Vegas. It happened in Dublin. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, buy side, I, you need the buy side and the sell side, you know? I, I've got a stinger on that one. Um, so my my wife came along for one of these things. I think it was the one in Dublin. And she was sitting on the side with one of the product managers on my team, um, Baljeet, for those of you that know him. And the story goes, Baljeet turned to my wife while Bigler was up on my shoulders and said, that's your husband. To which my wife replied, that's your boss. (laughs) 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 Brad, do you have any uh, favorite memory? I mean, you know, you you have your origin story. I mean, I think you guys know my origin story. That just still, to me, epitomizes DoubleClick, which is, you know, I showed up at DoubleClick. This is back in 97. You know, they they moved a copier out of the hall, and uh, they put, you know, like the world's smallest desk there. That was my desk. I realized I was literally sitting in the hall. Um, So one night I, like, grabbed a, a Kids in the Hall poster, and I crossed out the S, and I put it over my desk. Um, so I became known as the kid in the hall. And I mean, it's crazy. It's like 25 years later, but you know, Kevin O'Connor was right down the road, like right down the hall from, uh, Ken O'Connor, Kevin Ryan, and they would walk down the hall with investors. And, you know, this is back in early, early days are still like growing like gangbusters. And there's, you know, it's just like, yeah, we're growing so fast. We even have a kid in the hall. So anyway, I, I have nothing but fond memories of all of it. Um, we have many, many stories, uh, the four of us as well. Um, that uh, won't get shared on this uh, podcast, <laughs> but yeah, just a just an incredible, incredible ride. And even if it was messy in the middle there, I mean, those those final years, like moving fast with Rosenblatt, those were those were pretty awesome. Um, That's a great way to end it. Uh, I think the I'm pro- kind of surprised we got through this whole thing without anyone mentioning empowering originals, um, but uh, we'll we'll have to save that for. <laughs> Podcast. Or the logo uh, rebrand. The logo rebrand. Uh, which one? The empowering originals one or the two? The green and yellow sprite can. Kind I got of. this great idea. We're going to take Mastercard, but it'll be green. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I hope, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to this uh, parade of nonsense. Um, so uh, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to get all, all of us together. Um, so Brad, Jonathan, Jason, thanks for being here on the Architecture Podcast. Thanks for having us, Harry. Yeah, thanks, Harry. Sorry. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.